you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? It is not this kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spin yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Jesus said to love your neighbor, and these are our neighbors. The homeless gave me a street name. Um, I got a tattoo a few weeks ago, and it's a blue jay feather. And so my friend has named me the Flying Feather. So that is my current street name. I'm very proud of it. Um, The only problem is it's not very tough. So I've asked him to come up with a name that's a little tougher, so people will be scared of me when I'm on the street. Serving the homeless does not come naturally to me, did not come naturally to me. I was a good girl growing up, straight A student, didn't drink, didn't smoke. And so for me to get involved with people that have addiction issues, alcohol, alcoholism, drug addictions is very uncomfortable for me. Um, 
but that was what God asked me to do. And so the verse he led me to was the great commandment that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I really took that to heart and just wanted to start loving my neighbors. And that turned out to be homeless people. My first step in the homeless ministry was meeting a guy named Tim. And I saw him on the street corner flying a sign and I approached him and introduced myself and he wanted to borrow $20. And every time after that, he would always ask me for $20. And I finally told him, I'm not gonna ever give you any money, but I'm gonna give you something that's more valuable than money and that's my friendship. And so we became friends and I asked him if he wanted any lunch and he said that he did. So I bought him a corn dog from Shortstop and I asked him if he wanted anything to drink and he kind of rolled his eyes at me and I said something that's non-alcoholic that you can buy at Shortstop. So I got him a Coke and a corn dog and that's how our friendship started. The easy thing that I started doing to love people on the street was with Tim, he told me that he loved tuna sandwiches. And people on the street eat a lot of junk food, tacos and hamburgers, but a tuna sandwich is something that you can't get on the street. And so something easy that I started doing was every week I would make tuna sandwiches before church and bring them to him on Sunday. I started doing that about five years ago and I still bring tuna sandwiches to church every Sunday. I don't think I'll ever eat a tuna fish sandwich after making so many, but anybody can do that and that really made a difference to him. Um, another easy thing that I do is wash people's laundry. I don't do it all the time but anybody can throw in a load of laundry and so I'll take it home and throw it in my washer so you don't have to have special skills to do those kind of things. From my friendship with Tim I became friends with a lot of other people and I serve a lot of people and love them on the streets but some people are just special. One special person his name was Charlie and he actually died last summer he was 69 years old and he was a crack addict, but he had been clean for 27 days when he died. And he died face down on the street from a stroke or a heart attack. But he was one of my best friends on the street and I was heartbroken when he died. He was a believer and we spent a lot of time together going to appointments. He was a guitar player and I miss him so much. I have another friend named Trudy. She's 68 and she lives in a tent by a bridge and right now we're working on getting her ID, getting her birth certificate, getting her eyes fixed. She's almost blind, she can't see. And so I think that's what I love the most about serving in the homeless ministry is where initially I thought people were a project and what they became was just a people that needed to be loved. And so that's how I view people that live on the street. They're just my friends that need some help. I'm Leah Hargrave, a.k.a. Flying Feather, and I believe you have a part to play. Yeah. Yeah, welcome to You Have a Part to Play Week 2. We're talking about homelessness this week, and I'll get into that topic like this. You may know that I am a sports fan. Basically, if they keep score, I follow it. But I especially love baseball, and if you follow Major League Baseball, and I know you all do. You may know that once a year, Major League Baseball player is something that they call Players Weekend. And for that weekend, once a year, the, the players are allowed to put on the back of their jersey whatever they want you to call them or whatever they want to be known as. And so, uh, for example, Albert Pujols of the Angels becomes La Machina. 
the machine. Joey Gallo, the Texas Rangers, becomes Pico de Gallo. Pico de Gallo. Giancarlo Stanton of the Yankees becomes Parmesan Carlo. Yeah, the, the players choose what they want you to call them, and they express it by a name or a word that they put on the back of their jerseys. Now, what if, what if there were a name that the God of the Bible wanted to be known as? What if there were a, a way of expressing who he was that he wanted you to know and maybe even to call him? And well, of course, that there is, because more than 200 times in the Bible, the God of the Bible calls himself, or is called by those who know him, as the God of Mishpat. He's the God of justice. That's the Hebrew word for justice. He's the God of Mishpat. In other words, he's not just this name for a weekend. He's this name for all peoples in all times, and all places. And so today, as we take a look at the topic of homelessness, I want to talk about it in that light. In light of the nature and the character and the person of God. And to make sure that we're not talking about people like they're somehow like a project, you know, to be solved. But more like, as you heard Leah say, as people who, just like people in any vulnerable position, are people to be loved. So let's take a look at today, maybe not the way you saw it coming, but today, in light of the nature and the character and the person of God, I want to see three things. Number one, I want to see what we can't not do. Number two, what we must actually do. And finally, how we can do what we must do, what we can't not do, what we must actually do, and then how we can do that. Let's go here, number one, and see what we can't not do. Well, what's happening in this passage, Isaiah 58? Well, God in this passage, incredibly, is condemning a, a group of people who claim to follow him. Look at this, verse 2, he says, For day after day, they seek me out. So these are people who pray, who seek God daily. They aren't, the point is, atheists. They're not backsliders. They're not people from another faith system. They're God-fearing, praying people who God says, they seem eager to know my ways. He's saying it looks like, at least on the surface, they really care about truth. They really care about my moral ways, my morality. That's what that word means. They ask me for just decisions, God says. They seem eager for me to come near them. And of course, these people even fast. But despite all of this, God looks at all of this and says to his prophet Isaiah, he says, declare to my people their rebellion. Wow. And to the descendants of Jacob, their sins. In other words, God here is condemning, you've got to catch this, a spiritually oriented Praying, worshiping, fasting, church service attending, monotheistic following community of the one true God. Why? Not because of something they have done, but because of something they haven't. God says, you're in rebellion against me because you haven't done something called mishpat. Verse 2, God says, listen, you, you seek me out day after day as if you were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken, here it is, the commands of its God. God says, you've forsaken something, you haven't done something. Now, this translation, not the best, calls it God's commands, but the NIV, that's the translation, it leaves out, for whatever reason, a word that does exist in the Hebrew text uh, that the old King Jimmy, thankfully, includes and says what's been forsaken, here's how the King James puts it, what's been left undone are the ordinances of, of justice. That's about right. God says what's been forsaken, what's been left undone, are my commands to do mishpat, 
That's what's been left undone, and God is rebuking his own people for it. So he's saying, in essence, here's the big idea, that justice is something that you can't not do. Can't not do it and be in a right relationship with him. In other words, justice in the Bible is something that's far more active and passive and not only negative, excuse me, acting in positive, not only passive and negative. Here's what I mean. In our culture, we think of justice as something that's mostly negative and passive, as in justice is something we don't do, as in we don't steal, we don't lie, we don't murder. And of course, the God of the Bible cares so much about that. There is, after all, those little commandments. Thou shalt what? Not. Thou shalt not steal, uh, kill, uh, adultery. And we see God caring deeply about the guilty being un- about the guilty being punished, because to steal would be unjust. And to not punish the guilty is unjust. But these people here in Isaiah 58 aren't stealing. They're not lying. They're not murdering. And yet God says you are in rebellion against me. And here's why. It's because when it comes to the Bible vision of justice, when it comes to uh, the Bible's version of what it means to be a person of justice, the biblical vision is not less than not doing something. But it is far more. Justice, mishpat, is something that you can't not do and be in right relationship with this God. Why? It's all because of the name on the back of his jersey. It's all because of the name on the back of his jersey. He is the God of mishpat. Look at this. Psalm 89, righteousness and justice, mishpat, are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 33, 5, the Lord loves righteousness, mishpat. Psalm 146, 7, the Lord executes, brings about mishpat, justice for the oppressed. And there are countless more examples of this. God's saying, you want to be in relationship with me? You're in relationship with the being who cares for the poor, for the vulnerable, for the oppressed. And now, right now, I want to just stop here. I'll do this a bit later too, but stop right here and point out something that you may be feeling you may be thinking which is this right now you may be thinking Morgan this sounds like a pretty liberal leaning sermon pretty liberal church right justice for the oppressed that sounds like a certain political party maybe or a certain politician whose tweets go out tweets about this but if the message today were on let's say what the bible says about gender which is that God made male and female Or if it was about the Bible's unidirectional, consistent sexual ethic, which is that sexual expression is limited to one man and one woman in the context of one marriage for life, you may be saying, man, this church sounds really conservative. What's my point? It's this, that the God of the Bible does not fit in to your political party. The God of the Bible does not fit into our categories of cultural rightness or leftness, proving, by the way, it is not a product of Western culture. So when you're here, you're part of Mosaic, vote your conscience, who you want to, but please do not shoehorn the God of the Bible into a label or a political party. He's not the God of the Republican Party, not the God of the Democratic Party, but he is the God of Mishpat. He doesn't just not steal. He doesn't just hand down sentences to the guilty. He acts into the world onto the world in a certain way, on behalf of a certain kind of people. And to claim to know him means we must do the same as well. 
And that's why here at Mosaic, we can't do everything for everyone, but we are trying to do something with respect to those who live on the streets. There are a number of organizations and churches in the city who do this. We're so thankful for them, so grateful for every one of them, including a name you may know, named Alan Graham, as a, like a mini city for the homeless here on the outskirts of Austin. That's wonderful. That's fantastic. So thankful for him. But what about those who can't even fit in there? What about those who won't fit in there, who don't fit in there, who won't qualify for that? Who cares, in a way, for the bottom of the bottom? What about mishpat for them? What would that look like? Number two, here's what we must actually do. What does being a people of mishpat actually look like? Well, and you just knew I was going to say this, of course, but it looks like Marty McFly. Yes, that Marty McFly in the Academy Award winning, but not for acting, (coughs) movie, Back to the Future Part 2. Yes, Back to the Future 2, young Marty McFly and his DeLorean time machine go into the future. And of course, by the way, if you think a flying car time machine was like this weird deal from the 80s, let me tell you, it's still weird today. Now it's not just a dude from Family Times with his car, now it's a dude from The Office with his hot tub, right? Hot tub time machine? All right, maybe it's, 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 that, that one may not have won an Oscar either. But anyway, now hot tubs are time machines. But anyway, back to the future too. Where were we? Yes, Marty's in the future. He purchases an almanac with like the history of sports, uh, scores, sports, uh, races, horse races, all the results. And so when Marty's not looking, the bad guy in the movies, the bully Biff, Biff Tanner. Yeah, he steals the DeLorean while Marty and Doc aren't looking. He takes the almanac back to 1955 to young Biff. So young Biff can bet and get rich because young Biff will know the outcome of every game. And then old Biff returns to the future, his wealth surely in hand. But when Marty gets the time machine back and goes back to his present day in the 1980s, what he finds is terrible. His idyllic community, Hill Valley, has fallen into ruins because everything has now been purchased by rich young Biff, who's turned it all into slums. Marty's dad has died. Biff has forced Marty's mom to marry him. Boo, right? And Doc is in an insane asylum. The point is, Hill Valley, which used to be a good place, used to be a place where kids played in the neighborhood, people looked out for each other, were good, triumphed over evil, Hill Valley has fallen into decay, despair, and poverty, brokenness. What does Marty do? Well, he's got a time machine, right? So he goes back in time. He finds the almanac. He burns it so Biff can never get it. And he returns, and we see Hill Valley restored back to a place of peace, beauty, and shalom. What was the difference between despair and repair? Between despair and repair, well, it was one person One life doing mishpat, stepping into the breach of brokenness and poverty, risking himself, doing something on behalf of those who couldn't. So Marty McFly, at least for one moment, one movie, is what Isaiah, in a way, pictures. He's a repairer of broken walls. That's what he's doing. He's a restorer of streets with dwellings. Now, forget McFly for a moment. The person of Job in the Hebrew scriptures gives us, uh, let's say, a more robust vision, version of what Mishpat actually looks like. In the book of Job, chapter 31, maybe you know it, Job uh, is defending himself before God in chapter 31. And the person of Job says this, here's what Mishpat looks like. If I have kept the poor from their desire 
or I've caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or I've eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan hadn't shared it, if I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins haven't thanked me, and if he has not been worn with the fleece of my sheep, if I've lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket, and my arm be broken off at the elbow, for the alien is not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. What's he saying? He's saying that a just life looks like getting personally involved with doing mishpat to a group that theologian Nicholas Wolterstorff has called, here it is, the Quartet of the Vulnerable. The Quartet of the Vulnerable. That's, it's a way of saying there are four types of people in the Bible and throughout the Bible. The God of the Bible is always calling and showering attention upon. Who are those people, that quartet? Well, Job shows you here by name. He says it's the orphan, the widow, the poor, and the alien or the immigrant without rights. That's what that word means. Now, these four in particular, although God's heart for groups and people isn't limited to these, but these four groups are mentioned and highlighted over and over and over again. Why why does God call attention to the poor, to the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant to make sure they are not trampled underfoot by those with power. Well, for two reasons we're going to see, both of which may surprise you. The first reason of which God makes blindingly, excuse me, obvious right here in Isaiah 58. When he says, here's what mishpat means, verse 7, well, it's to share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them, and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Now, hang on a minute. God here begins by talking about the the poor, the homeless, the wanderer, like they're the other, someone not connected to you. But then he ends the whole thing by saying they're like your own flesh and blood. Why is God saying the poor are like your family? What's he saying? He's saying here that every single person in life on this planet is interconnected. Interconnected. We're all woven together in life. One life affects another, affects another, affects another. And to not get involved with the quartet of the vulnerable is the same thing as turning away from. That word means to pretend like you don't see your own children, your brother, your sister. And listen, as far as we know, come on, we are the only humans in the universe. Unless those folks at Area 51 this weekend have discovered something that the rest of us didn't know. That makes us all a kind of a family. But there's a second, even more surprising reason God calls us to ministry with this quartet of the vulnerable. It's not just because the way we treat the poor is like how we treat our family. It's because how we treat the poor, God says, is how you treat me. Look at Proverbs 14, 31. If you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. Proverbs 19, 17. If you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. You say, well, that's just the Old Testament, you know, like Jewish law kind of thing. No, 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 no. Look at what Jesus Christ himself says in his final parable in Matthew, the frightening parable in Matthew, the one about the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, Jesus says this, they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or are you needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? 
He will reply, God, Jesus says, God will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment. But they're righteous to eternal life. I didn't make that up. It's right there. Jesus says, whatever you did not do for them, you did not do for me. How we treat the poor is how we treat Jesus Christ himself. Now, at this point, again, let me stop. Let me pause. Let me say three things here. First of all, number one, if you are a Christian, you claim to follow God. Do you know that this is what you signed up for? This is what it is at the heart of your faith. Number two, if you're not a Christian, you saw us online, a friend drug you in here today, or you thought that you have a part to play thing looked kind of cool and you wanted to check it out, but you've already essentially pre-decided against Christianity, or more specifically, you've pre-decided against the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to God and salvation. If you've rejected Jesus as that, do you know that this is what you're rejecting? Do you know that you are rejecting the only God of any faith who cares so much about the poor that he says how you treat them is how you treat him? Well, Buddhism says poverty is just an illusion. Hinduism says poverty is your fault, more or less. Atheism says poverty is something you can get involved with if you like, but because there's no real meaning in life, doesn't really matter. Islam says, yes, how you treat the poor is important, but would never go so far as to say that how you treat the poor is how you're treating God himself. See, this claim is utterly unique. That's number one, number two. But number three, if you're feeling guilty about now, please stop. Please stop. That is not the point of any of this today because guilt can never help you become a person of justice. It can't. Maybe for like a week. Maybe two, you got to, you know, you know, your really conscience is messed up, you know, but no guilt can never help you become fundamentally a person of mishpat. So what can number three, let's see how we now can do what we must do. What can help us become this kind of people? Well, God says something here through Isaiah at the end of the passage. It's fascinating. Look at this. He says, if you call the Sabbath a delight the Lord's holy day honorable. And if you honor it by not going your own way, not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. So Isaiah uses these words, delight. He uses the word joy. He connects them with justice. What's he getting at? Let me try to illustrate. Uh, A few years ago, just a couple, like when Carrie and I got married just a couple of years ago, I knew, of course, I knew when we got married, she was an emotional person, way more emotional than I am. And she she goes, that's right. She feels a lot of feelings and she likes to talk about her feelings and express her feelings and how she feels about her feelings. And now as a writer, she's gotten really good at writing about her feelings and she helps a lot of people through what she feels. But when when we got married, as a 25-year-old dude more or less raised in the tough guy vein. I didn't really perceive her feelings as something that were really things I cared about, let alone understood. But over time, yeah, as I stayed in relationship with someone utterly different than me and yet who loved me unconditionally, thank God, I began to change and grow and stop to see your feelings as something that got in the way of our relationship. But I began to value those things because they were not only... The name on the back of her jersey, in a way, 
But I saw that I was becoming more and more capable of valuing something meaningful, gave life depth, meaning, and richness, all because I embraced all of who she was and is. What I once found a duty is now a delight. What happened? What happened was I got into a permanent relationship with someone utterly different than me and embraced all she was. And in the same way, God is saying here, if you'll embrace all of who I am, if you'll call what I call good, if you'll honor the Sabbath like I mean it to be uh, honored, if you'll follow my ways like I mean them to be followed, if you'll love justice like this, you will find now that joy, if you'll embrace all of who I am, you'll find that joy comes on the inside. And now you can become the kind of person I've dreamt for you to become. Oh, but there's a catch here about God coming into your life. Maybe you caught it. You say, what's the catch? Oh, it's the little phrase you heard. Embracing all of who God is. Because who is he? The God of justice. The God of judgment. The God who Jesus Christ him said will cast people into eternal punishment. The God who both acts on behalf of the poor and who judges the guilty, the lawbreaker. And let's be honest, who among us has not broken the law of God? Paul writes in Romans to both those with and without power on the up and the down, the ins and the outs. He says, there is none righteous. No, not one who among us hasn't lived in some way and doesn't deserve to be cast into eternal punishment. Hasn't stolen something, uh, uh, lived outside of, uh, sexually expressed ourselves outside of a marriage covenant, turned a blind eye to the poor. God is a God of justice. And therefore to invite him into your life means you embrace, you bring into your life his justice, his judgment. But to do that would mean his justice, judgment falls rightfully and deservedly on you. How can we do this? How can we fully embrace the God of judgment and justice and yet be in relationship? Here's how. It's because of the theological uniqueness of the claim that Jesus Christ makes when he tells you that how we treat the poor is how we treat him. Because only the Christian faith tells you how far the God of the Bible will go, has gone to identify with the poor the vulnerable, and the oppressed. Though he had all power, all riches, position, privilege, Jesus Christ became not just human, but poor. His family was poor. When he was born, his parents offered the two pigeons in the temple. That was the acceptable offering, sacrifice of poor people. Jesus functioned effectively as a homeless person throughout his ministry. He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have no place to lay my head. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed animal. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room and he was buried in a borrowed tomb God literally became the thing he identified with but even more than that he became a victim of injustice his arrest was illegal on trumped up charges as a victim of a legal system brought about by even God-fearing people showing us that even the very best well-meaning systems can be unjust and oppressive his trial was illegal no defense counsel given it was all done to do away with a person that those at the top wanted to eliminate and Jesus Christ didn't just become poor he became a victim of Roman injustice on a Roman cross why not to bring that deserved judgment upon us, but to bear it all for us, to bear it all 
as us. He went in our place on the cross to receive what all of our law-breaking deserves so that we could receive what he deserves, the truly just person deserves, a relationship with God the Father that changes us into a people of joy and generosity and justice. We can now fully embrace God because he has fully embraced us first. See, in the end, hear me, it's the cross of Jesus Christ alone that can make us just before God and transform us into people who live justly out of knowing him. Someone by the name of Dr. Joanne Terrell. You may know Joanne Terrell. She is an African-American writer. She's a professor at Chicago Theological Seminary. And Dr. Terrell wrote a book uh, about how her mother had been murdered by her mother's boyfriend. And and all about how all the the racism and the classism and the sexism and the intersection of all that had conspired. And had gone to that one act of horror that left her traumatized and scarred and searching for answers. And she wrote this. She said this. She said, quote, I had to find a connection between my story and Jesus' story. And she did. You know what it was? Here's what it was. She said, it was the cross. The cross. She saw the cross as the connection between her and God. She saw that like Jesus, uh, she and her mother had both been victims of injustice. And when she saw that, it changed her. She was able to forgive and to let him go. See, it was the counterintuitive, upside-down, unforeseen logic and beauty of the mishpat of the cross of Christ, the ultimate bearer, repairer of the breach between God and people. It transformed her life, and it can transform yours as well. What can't we not do, church? Mishpat. Why not? It's because we serve a God of justice. What does that look like? It looks like throwing ourselves into caring for the vulnerable. Third, what can give us the power for that? It's by embracing, pulling into our lives the God of the vulnerable who himself has embraced us at the cross, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.